Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. Welcome back. Today we are talking about the ongoing spiritual practice of self-awareness. Now, you're going to find that this is somewhat of a misleading title um, because the objective of self-awareness cannot be met the more we navel-gaze and the more we look within ourselves. But what I'm going to posit is that um, it is more about God-awareness, and this practice that I'm going to teach about today uh, is focused on becoming increasingly aware of God, uh, in particular God's graces in our lives. So to assist us in this, the tool we are going to use is a book written by Jim Manny. And this book is called A Simple Life-Changing Prayer. And the Simple Life-Changing Prayer, the tool that we're going to be teaching today, is it's called uh, The Examine. The Prayer of Examine. Now, this is adapted from St. Ignatius Loyola's Examine, which is a prayer that Ignatius taught his own disciples. Now, it would be wrong to say that Ignatius owned this approach to prayer, but it certainly was something that he intentionally taught his disciples that today we are recognizing was a useful pattern, a useful pattern for self-awareness. For some of us, you might have a little bit of historical context. Uh, Admittedly, from a Protestant perspective, Ignatius has a bit of a controversial reputation. Uh, He was instrumental, his Jesuits were instrumental in leading the Counter-Reformation, and of course, there were a lot of problems with that. Now, that said, we don't want to lose Ignatian spirituality for the checkered past of the Counter-Reformation, there is still a lot of good in the Ignatian approach to spirituality, and indeed it has seen a popular resurrection in the last few decades that I think is helpful for us as we are becoming more and more whole and holy for the ministry. So what we're going to do is talk through this approach. Now, mind you, I want to qualify this. This is actually Jim Manny's adaptation of St. Ignatius Loyola's Examine. So we're going to talk through Jim Manny's understanding of it. Mind you, there are different ways to pray the Examine, but my objective is to uh, use Jim Manny as the skeleton for our approach. And really, underneath these five steps of the prayer of Examine, you're going to find that there is a good deal of vocational theology. There's a good deal of theology underneath this that is actually quite Ignatian in emphasis. So we're teaching the structure according to Manny's pattern, uh, according to his book, A Simple Life-Changing Prayer, but at the same time teaching Ignatian theology on the examine. So those five steps of this prayer that we're going to teach, first of all, Ask God for light. Ask God for light. Second, give thanks. 
Third, review the day. Fourth, face your shortcomings. And fifth, look toward the day to come. Again, that's deceptively simple. You might think, well, this sounds like a simple one, two, three, four, five steps on spiritual success. But again, there is a lot of theology underneath that that I'd like to unpack. And I think that hopefully what you will have gained at the close of this time together is yet another tool in your toolkit that will become an increasingly used practice for self-awareness. Now, before I go right into that first first heading of um, Ask God for Light, why is self-awareness so important for the ministry? I will say that in my own training for the ministry in the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination, we were taught that every pastor who is not self-aware becomes a danger to themselves as well as their congregations. In fact, we were even able to conduct some studies to put a monetary figure to this, seeing that for every $10,000 that was spent on pastoral health and wholeness, which is something that my denomination did, we, we spend generously to bring our pastors to conferences, to get them through counseling in relationships of spiritual formation and giving a lot of resources. Well, why, why is so much money spent on our pastors? That's because for every $10,000 that's spent on pastoral health actually saves the denomination something like 100,000 in disciplinary cases. Uh, disciplinary cases actually can result in tremendous cost in terms of um, the uh, resources that need to be brought in, in terms of the counseling, in terms of the interim pulpit supply, in terms of the very real damages that can occur. and. In many senses, $100,000 is just the monetary reflection of the cost. If a pastor engages in some kind of scandalous behavior or a moral failure, this is incredibly damaging to the souls of their people and can result in far greater harms than just monetary. So there is a very real cost benefit, if I can put it somewhat crassly, to self-awareness, but Far be it from just that, I'm sure all of you want to be healthy for health's sake. Now, self-awareness, I think of it in terms of, uh, I'm sorry, yet again another popular culture metaphor. By now you can probably tell that I think in terms of movies and that all of my life is seen through the silver screen. And I can't help it. I'm a child of my age. Um, I tend to see meaning on the screen, and many times it becomes a metaphor for what I am experiencing to be true. So in particular, uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan by Steven Spielberg is a very mesmerizing movie for me, all of the character development, and in particular, the character of the medic is foremost in my mind whenever I think of self-awareness. First of all, the medic, played by Giovanni Ribisi, uh, is someone who goes out fearlessly into the front lines as the bullets are flying to save his both his his compadres as well as his enemies. His side and the other side, you can see that he's actively going out there. This, for me, is the metaphor for the minister, the person that goes out even in a hail of bullets, sometimes with no regard for their own safety. 
Unfortunately, a bullet finally does meet the medic, and he lays on the field dying. As uh, there is a pool of blood, and he's surrounded by soldiers with nary a hospital anywhere nearby. They're in the middle of nowhere, and he's surrounded by his own people saying, tell us what to do. Now, I can tell you, unfortunately, if you are at this point, it is too late. If your parishioners are gathered around you saying, we don't know how to care for you because you've cared for us so much, but now the tables have been turned, this is not a good place to be in. It's too late. The poor medic, as he lay dying, is forced to practice self-awareness, albeit too late. And they ask him, the soldiers surrounding us, Doc, tell us what to do. Tell us. We don't know how to help you. Tell us. And you see him still himself and calm himself amidst the shock of being mortally wounded. Amidst his pain, he calms himself and he begins to give them instructions for how to care for himself. He starts to feel his own body. He starts to feel his own pain. He starts to try to do some triage on himself. Again, again, too late. It's too late. But the principle still applies. The sad finality of the story is that his last request is for some more morphine. He says, I could use some more morphine because there's nothing left. Just die without pain. And the soldiers look at each other because they know that essentially he's asking for drugs. We talked about this uh, in episodes past. Henry Nouwen said it so well that ministers who live primarily in their heads and in spiritualization are subject to a very real carnality. And if we are not self-aware and practicing self-care, not only do we become a liability to others and ourselves, but we are prone to use and abuse of things that will take away the pain. When he says, I could use some more morphine, that's all that he knows, and they give it to him. And in the end, that's how he dies. So sorry for kind of this heavy opening analogy, um, but I think it illustrates that like the medic on the field, first of all, I hope it's not too late for you to start practicing self-awareness. And secondly, I think every now and then, even in the hell of bullets and in the hell of the onslaught of ministry, that you will begin to learn to stop and listen to what's going on inside of my body, what's going on in my emotions, what am I feeling, what's happening within me. It's a very important practice. So on that note, let's dive right in with Jim Manny's version of the examine. In step one, we ask God for light. Now, I know that I have taught several ways for prayer. There are form prayers and set prayers, and then there's also extemporaneous or extempore improvised prayer. Asking God for light can take either form. If you choose to use your own words, uh, Lord, help me to see what I don't see. Um, shed your light on me at this time. Or using some kind of a form or set prayer uh, that can be helpful or useful. Um, 
there are some great set prayers that I could use to open this up. Let me share one with you now. There's a beautiful prayer used by the recovery community that is very apt for this first step of asking God for light. This prayer is called the Set Aside Prayer, and I've personally used it myself in this first step. It goes like this. Dear God, please help me to set aside everything I think I know so that I may have an open mind and a new experience. Please help me to see the truth about myself or about this place or people or thing. Amen. It is as simple as that, a posture of openness. That prayer actually comes from something called the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the chapter to the agnostic, as they are learning to find God, I think it's quite instructive for us as we learn to set aside everything we think we know. This is an important principle. I think of the statement Jesus makes from the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In the context of counseling, I have heard that we can hear this to say, forgive them. They don't know why they do what they do. What an indictment. What a statement of the human race, of all of us, that we really are not aware of what's going on within us. And so it is quite important for us to begin our prayer asking God for light, not just rattling off all these things or just unloading our hearts, but starting with the structure of saying, God, I don't even know what I'm asking for. I don't even know with what intent. Many times, I don't even know what state of mind I'm in as I come to prayer. Now, some people say, I am a verbal processor, and so I want to process what I'm feeling and talk it out with God. This first step is actually more about being an auditory processor, about listening. Yes, we're asking God for light, but our posture is not to just come and prattle off all these things that we think we need or want or desire. After all, there's that that quote from C.S. Lewis, which I'm, I've quoted elsewhere, uh, only words, words, to be led out in battle against other words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer, because why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? Oftentimes, even in my own life, I'll come to prayer and I'll start saying things, and I can, I can just sense that I, I, I'm not exactly sure where what what it is that I need at this moment and what it is that I'm I'm even trying to communicate to God. So in asking God for light, what we're doing is we're beginning with a discernment, a discernment of our needs, of our wants, and in particular, a discernment of our desires. Now this here is the Ignatian component. Ignatius taught his disciples to pay attention to their desires. For me, I can tell you how foreign of a practice this is. I'm not used to paying attention to my desires somewhere. I'm not sure if it's in my culture or in my theology or both. I was taught that desires are not good, that if I feel, it's bad. If I want, it is suspect. Thankfully, uh, Ignatius taught his Jesuits hundreds of years ago that 
it's not always bad to have desires. In fact, desires are something to pay attention to. Desires can oftentimes reveal a real lack or a real emptiness that we have. Sometimes they reveal a longing. Either way, it's important to pay attention to these desires because for good or for bad, they reveal something to us. So when we're asking God for light, specifically, we're asking ourselves the question, what is it that I really want today? Father James Martin of the Society of Jesus describes this quite well in a uh, in a post on americamagazine.org, and he describes it like this. Desire plays an enormous role in the life of a Jesuit. We are taught as novices that our desires are important to listen to. A young Jesuit who dreams of working overseas or studying scripture or working as a retreat director will be encouraged to pay attention to their desires. Likewise, Jesuit superiors reverence these desires when making decisions about where to assign a particular Jesuit. This is part of the decision-making process known as discernment in the Jesuits. And so not all desire is bad. Learning to pay attention to our desires actually keeps us from a lot of the delusional thinking I think we are prone to in ministry where we might say, I don't need anything. Uh, I, don't, I don't want anything. I just need Jesus. But the fact of the matter is we are human beings. Uh, again, this is the theology of the incarnation as essential. Uh, we recognize we are embodied spirits. We need to pay attention to our needs, our wants, our desires. And uh, we need to discern those desires. Something comes up in addition to this. Um, having discerned our desires, Ignatius also taught to look for the consolations and the desolations. Now, consolation does not mean that I feel constantly happy or at peace. And from here on, I'm going to read from Vanita Hampton Wright, uh, in her article, Consolation and Desolation in IgnatianSpirituality.com. It's a good description of consolation. So it, it doesn't mean I'm always happy. I'm always consoled. In fact, sometimes when I am doing precisely what God is leading me to do, I might feel negative pressure from others, or I might find the experience a challenge because I'm growing. Yet if I sense in my spirit that I'm going the right way, this spiritual reality consoles me even if the day is bumpy or smooth. So consolings can exist even in the midst of negative feelings. Conversely, desolation also holds many emotions and experiences. If I'm in desolation, I might try to alleviate the discomfort by drinking too much or seeking distraction through more work or social events. The food and drink and activity might feel quite good, but they are not leading me to greater joy, peace, and love. In fact, false consolations can help me avoid the true consolation of God's presence. Um, pardon the allusion there to drinking too much. Uh, this is the Catholic tradition, after all, where 
Uh, they are not as rigid in their understanding and their use of alcohol. Um, but for our rights and purposes, I think we can translate that to many, many things. If it's not the consumption of a substance, uh, drinking too much can mean a lot of other things, honestly. It can mean um, eating too much. It can mean binging on entertainment, binging on any activity that is leading me further and further away from God. That essentially is a desolation. And even if it might feel good, and we feel positive about it, but if we're finding that it's actually bringing us further away from God, it becomes a desolation. Now, what you're beginning to see is that consolations and desolations are somewhat blurred because we can sometimes be confused. We think that this is something that feels good for me, but then it's revealed. It's revealed in the process of prayer that this is not good for me. It turns out that um, I am in desolation right now. Conversely, something that does not feel good and is painful, but we know is leading us closer to God, can in turn be a consolation. Now, through your growth in spiritual formation, you will learn more how to discern these things. What I'd like to do in closing is offer you a practical tool something that I have used and that I've used in group spiritual direction of people um, as a, a means to discern our desires and to see which ones are desolations and consolations. It's actually quite simple. All I do is write out three columns, three columns, and in the middle column, I'll write all of my desires. I mean anything, you name it. Right now, I want a cheeseburger. Right now, I want to be closer to God. Right now, I desire Sabbath. Right now, I desire to sleep in until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. <laughs> right now, I am desiring intimacy. Right now, I am desiring, and so on and so forth. And as much as you can be honest for what you are really wanting, that, that right there is, is the ultimate objective of this first step. Ask God for light. What is it that I really want? What is it that I really want right now? I think that's probably one of the most important questions of life. What is it that you really want? Oh, goodness, here comes another popular culture analogy. Um, and here it comes. Yes, it's from the movie Goodwill Hunting. I apologize. I'm a preacher. I'm a, I'm a preacher that spoke to postmodern audiences. I can't help it. I'm full of these. Uh, this movie, Goodwill Hunting, has an, an, an exchange between Robin Williams, the psychologist, and Matt Damon, uh, who plays the, uh, the brilliant young savant, Will, Will Hunting. And finally, Robin Williams' character presses Will and says, listen, what is it that you really want? What is it that you want in life? And this young man, he says, well, I... I'd really like to have some sheep, and I, I want to live out in the countryside and become a shepherd. And what, what Robin Williams says to him, I cannot repeat here, but the feeling of it is, get out of my office. And, he's, and, and he shoots back, this Will, young kid, Will. He says, what, what are you telling me to get out of your office for? I mean, you know, I'm bearing my soul here. And he says, get out of my office. You don't know what you want. 
You don't know what you, I just told you, I want to be a shepherd. And he says, well, okay, go ahead, Bo Peep, you know, go and do what you want and come back and come back when you know what you really want in your life. Because why would you be solving math equations on the MIT chalkboard if all you wanted to do was just live in obscurity as a shepherd somewhere? Clearly, you are wanting something. Clearly, you're wanting to be noticed. No one's looking around and this janitor who's pretending to be a janitor and yet can solve these equations uh, is doing this surreptitiously under the cover of night. What is it that you really want? That exchange to me, I think, epitomizes God's dealings with me and as well as my dealings with many young people as I've had to press and say, what is it that you really want? If you do not know what you want, then come back when you're ready to tell me. Because at this point, we're wasting each other's time if we're not willing to be honest. That's it right there. It's the honesty that this is after. The willingness to examine the deepest things that we want. Now, getting back to that chart that I was telling you about, in the middle column, we list our desires. Everything, honestly, that I really want. All right, fine. Throw the shepherd thing in there, too. Maybe that's coming from somewhere. But really, you've got the potential in the world. You, you, can, you can invent the longer-lasting light bulb. You, you have the capacity, the capability, the competency. What is it that you wish to accomplish in your life? What are the, and listen, this is not just the big things. Maybe it's even the small things. Right now, I just really want to take a nap. Right now, I want to be affirmed. Right now, I want to be seen. Write that down, write it. Now to the left of that, that column is titled Desolations. And to the right of that, that column is titled Consolations. Now, you see how simple this is? It's just three columns, desires in the middle. You start out there, list all of your desires, and then you begin to discern. This desire is driven by something that's false. This desire is driven by the false self, or it's something that uh, actually takes me further away from God. And then what you do is you just draw an arrow into that column, you or you move that, that desire. And you'd be surprised. Even the things that we think that are good might be a desolation. It might be a desolating. It moves me further away from God. I thought it was a good thing, but actually it's not. And then discern the consolations. I desire, I desire intimacy, and that might seem suspect, Intimacy is something that is a physical urge. It's dark. It leads one to sin. And yet, it screams for God. I seek to be consoled. I'm young. I'm single. I have needs and desires and wants for affection and belonging, to be held, to hold. These longings are not necessarily evil. Paying attention to those, we see that perhaps they're not just desolations, but they're actually consolations. They're desires for things that lead us closer to God. 
that could sometimes run awry in their expression. So you can see how, how it's, it's not just this kind of black and white thing that, that there's bad desires and that's it. A lot of discernment is required, and that's essentially what this first step of asking God for light is about. So I've already spoken a lot here, um, and you can see there's many ways you can take this. I've spoken about desires, recognizing what we really want, consolations, desolations, and I've even offered you this practical three-column chart. Um, Take this use it, uh, leave what's not helpful behind, uh, develop your own practice, increasing in your capacity for discernment of your own desires. This will be an important first step in the prayer of examine, and we'll continue with the following steps in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.